Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Not So With You. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 18, 2009. The humorous Dave Barry learned a thing or two on his summer internship in Washington 40 years ago. But like many internships, his expectations met with very different realities. Years later, and with typical wit and wisdom, Barry deconstructed the distorted values that characterize those corridors of power. Listen to Barry. When I got to Washington, I discovered that even among young people, being a good guy was not the key thing. The key thing was your position on the great Washington totem pole of status. Way up at the top of this pole is the president. Way down at the bottom, below mildew, is the public. In between is an extremely complex hierarchy of government officials, journalists, lobbyists, lawyers, and other power players, holding thousands of minutely graduated status rankings, differentiated by extremely subtle nuances that only Washingtonians are capable of grasping. For example, Washingtonians know whether a person whose title is Principal Assistant Deputy Undersecretary is more or less important than a person whose title is Associate Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary or Principal Deputy to the Deputy Assistant Secretary or Deputy to the Deputy Secretary or Principal Assistant Deputy Undersecretary or Chief of Staff to the Assistant Assistant Secretary. By the way, all of these are real federal job titles. Everybody in Washington always seems to know exactly how much status everybody else has. I don't know how they do it. Maybe they all get together in some secret location and sniff one another's rear ends. All I know is, back in my internship in the summer of 1967, when I went to Washington parties, they weren't nothing like parties I'd become used to in college. I was used to parties where it was not unusual to cap off the evening by drinking bourbon from a shoe, and not necessarily your own shoe. Whereas the Washington parties were serious, everybody made an obvious effort to figure out where everybody else fit on the totem pole. <clears throat> then they spent the rest of the evening sucking up to whoever was higher up. I hated it. Of course, one reason I hated it was that nobody ever sucked up to me, since interns rank almost as low as the public. The Gospel reading this week suggests that James and John, and the ten disciples who exploded at them in anger, would have fit quite nicely into the Washingtonian world that stratifies people into a hierarchy based upon their perceived power, worth, or status, and then pursues a zero-sum game of unbridled self-interest. Of course, Jesus' rebuke of the disciple warns us of our own tendency to do the same. In the book of Mark, 
Three different times, Jesus warns his 12 disciples about his destiny at the hands of political powers and raucous mobs in Jerusalem. Betrayal, mockery, condemnation, suffering, violent execution, death, and then resurrection. Despite knowing what awaited him in Jerusalem, Mark pictures Jesus as resolutely determined. He writes, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Right after each of the three predictions, the disciples responded to Jesus with objections, disbelief, fear, ignorance, and, incredibly, requests for their own greatness and glory. After walking with Jesus for three years, they demonstrated how badly they misunderstood the true nature of his redemptive mission. After the first passion prediction, Jesus rebuked Peter for trying to prevent his sufferings. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Mark 8.33 After his second prediction, the disciples argued about who was the greatest. Mark 9.34 And in the Gospel for this week, after the third prediction, in a power grab of remarkable audacity, presumption, and exaggerated self-importance, James and John asked Jesus, do for us whatever we ask. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. The other ten disciples then implicated themselves by indignantly protesting. They clearly feared that the two sons of Zebedee might gain some advantage over them. Matthew's account of the story includes a telling detail. He writes that it was the mother of James and John who made this brazen request. In response, Jesus made an ironic comparison. Their request for greatness, glory, and power, he said, mimicked the petty Roman overlords who oppressed the Jews with taxes, who exploited them, and who would execute Jesus in a very few days. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Rome's political power mongers whom the disciples imitated were the same people they despised and resented. <clears throat> Jesus reversed and subverted this common pattern of human behavior. Not the domineering spirit of political power, not schemes to control and subjugate people for your own advantage, not the narcissistic grasp for glory, says Jesus, but the sacrificial will to serve characterizes human greatness. His own life, teaching, death, and resurrection were an extended demonstration of the true nature of human greatness. We read in Mark 10:45, "Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, 
and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom liberates someone at the payment of a price. In secular antiquity, a prisoner of war or a slave could be redeemed by paying a ransom price. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the kofur is a sum of money paid for release and reconciliation, as in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. As a constellation of interpretations emerged to understand just who Jesus was and what he did, central to them all was this idea of ransom. The conviction of early believers that Jesus was not a hapless victim, not a failed sage who overplayed his hand, not a rabble-rouser crushed by Rome, but instead he was one who offered himself to God to redeem humanity. The Old Testament reading for this week provided early Christians, most all of whom were Jewish, with the classic text for confessing Jesus as a ransom for many. Listen to Isaiah 53, 4-12. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we were considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, was brought, that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 
The epistle of Diognetus from about the year 130 aptly describes this as a so-called sweet exchange, whereby, quote, God in pity for us took upon himself our sins and himself parted with his own son as a ransom for us. Centuries later, the reformer Martin Luther called this a marvelous exchange in which God takes our brokenness and we receive his wholeness. Many wise people have observed how it's the insecure, fragile self that seeks to control, dominate, exploit, and manipulate others for its own advantage. Human experience tells us that such efforts are doomed to fail because when they succeed, they in fact destroy others in the process. In the upside-down world of Jesus, only the strongest sense of self, a self that neither grovels nor grasps, can resist chasing counterfeit notions of greatness. In imitating Jesus, as far as that's humanly possible, we serve others for their good rather than for our own glory. For books this week, I reviewed Diana Butler Bass, A People's History of Christianity, The Other Side of the Story, New York, HarperCollins, 2009, 353 pages. Most history of Christianity has been written from the perspective of what Diana Butler Bass calls Big C Christianity. There are liberal and conservative versions of this narrative, she says, and in shorthand it runs something like this. Christ, Constantine, Christendom, Calvin, and Christian America. In this version, Christianity is an us-against-them morality tale of a suffering church that's vindicated by God through its global victory over other worldviews, religions, or political systems. This is a story of schisms, crusades, inquisitions, and warfare. And in Butler Bass's mind, it's lost its hold on the spiritual imaginations of many contemporary believers. Bass, therefore, proposes a supplemental, or maybe even an alternative narrative, one that she says is generative rather than militant. She calls this a story of great command Christianity, based upon gospel texts like Luke 10, 25-27, to love God through devotion and spirituality, and to love our neighbor through a social ethic that pursues justice. Bass's history insists that lived Christianity makes no sense as a magisterial narrative of Big C Christianity, but rather is better remembered as more like a collection of campfire tales of those who incarnated the Great Command. In fact, she believes, along with many others, that North American Christianity is now experiencing a renewal of just such a lived story variously known as emergent or progressive Christianity that struggles mightily to move beyond standard paradigms of conservative liberal denominationalisms 
in their disagreements about propositional theology. Whether this new narrative reduces the story to all ethical action and no theological plot is an open question. Readers can decide for themselves whether her black-white paradigm works. Any history that tries to retell 2,000 years of story in 300 pages faces challenges. I appreciated learning about many unnamed and unknown saints, most of whom were women, whose stories have been neglected, ignored, or lost because of standard narratives. But for the most part, these saints live and say the same sorts of things you hear from actors in the standard narrative. And conversely, major elements of the Big C version receive very short shrift. There's nothing about the ecumenical councils. Justification by faith is barely mentioned in her treatment of the Reformation. Nothing to speak of about divergent views of baptism and the Eucharist. Or, for example, only a sentence or two about the Avignon Babylonian captivity of the papacy. The result is a highly stylized history that's not an end in itself, but a means to an end. This is history with an avowed purpose. I kept sensing an ironic subtext here, that with Bass's new and improved narrative, there's an implicit claim that for the first time we can hear the story as it really and truly ought to be told, in its original simplicity and purity and in contrast to the corrupted narratives that have heretofore ruled the day. In fact, she says as much on her last page, where she writes that, quote, regular people often get it better than the rich, the famous, and the powerful, end quote. Of course, such romantic nostalgia, complete with its own canon, is precisely the type of history that Bass wants to avoid and correct. But there's no question that her narrative claims to be on the side of the angels. True, there's always an other side to standard narratives that deserve our respect and attention. They should be recovered, retold, but not marginalized, and also not romanticized. Diana Butler Bass, A People's History of Christianity, the other side of the story. For film this week, I review The Informant from 2009. The title of this film has an exclamation point, and for a good reason. Matt Damon stars as Mark Whitaker, an executive whistleblower at Archer Daniels Midland in the early 1990s. As the FBI's key informant, Whitaker made some 200 tapes that documented ADM's global price-fixing scheme. When all the lawyering was done, ADM paid $500 million in fines, and three executives spent about three years in jail. That's the easy part. But director Steven Soderbergh places Whitaker at the center of the story as a microversion of corporate greed. Whitaker is brilliant. He earned a PhD from Cornell. He's disarming. He's also probably mentally ill. Whitaker embezzled $9 million in kickbacks and money laundering from ADM 
at the same time that he was collaborating with the FBI. For that, he went to prison for almost nine years. And so people today still argue whether he was a hero or a crook. Soderbergh seems to use Whitaker as a metaphor for corporate greed, rationalizations, and genuine craziness run amok. This film is based upon the book by Kirk Eichenwald, the title of the book, The Informant, A True Story. A new film from director Steven Soderbergh, The Informant. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Boris Pasternak, the Russian Nobel laureate. <clears throat> the short poem is called To Be Famous. Creation calls for self-surrender, not loud noise and cheap success. Life must be lived without false face, lived so that in the final count we draw unto ourselves love from space. So plunge yourself into obscurity and conceal there your tracks. But be alive, alive your full share, alive until the end. Boris Pasternak, to be famous. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 18th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.